Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 3, the necessity of the new birth. I want to cover this morning a conversation that the Lord Jesus had uh, with a gentleman. John chapter 3, the Lord laid on my heart probably a month ago. Uh, to bring this message on Father's Day, a special challenge to men uh, because I believe, as you'll hear later in the message, it addresses one of the greatest needs uh, in the church today. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word and we'll read down through verse 15. The Bible tells us, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony." If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. God, we would ask. That your spirit would be at work. That you would speak to hearts. God, as we mentioned earlier, all we can do is speak to ears. But we pray that today your Holy Spirit would do that surgery on hearts that only He is capable of. And Lord, where conviction and transformation is needed, that you would bring that about. Lord, give us ears to hear today what your Spirit is saying to the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to listen to how one writer introduces this text that we're looking at today. I quote him here. He says, everybody talking about heaven ain't a-going there. This line is from an old spiritual and it accurately describes many today in the church. Outwardly they identify with Christ, but inwardly they've never been genuinely converted. Because they cling to a false profession, they fool themselves into thinking they are on the narrow path leading to life, when in reality they are on the broad road that leads to destruction. To make matters worse... Their self-deception is often reinforced by well-meaning but undiscerning Christians who naively embrace them as true believers. Such confusion stems from the watered-down pseudo-gospels that are propagated from far too many pulpits. Cheap grace, market-driven ministry, emotionalism, Subjectivism and an indiscriminate inclusivism has all infiltrated the church with devastating consequences. As a result, almost any profession of faith is affirmed as genuine 
even from those whose lives manifest no outward signs of true fruit. For many, no one's faith is to be questioned. Meanwhile, key New Testament passages regarding the danger of false faith and the need for self-examination go unheeded and ignored. Now folks, those are powerful words that we dismiss or overlook to our own peril. We know that there were two subjects in the Word of God that Jesus addressed more than He addressed any others. He addressed the subject of giving and He addressed the subject of hell. Two subjects that today nobody necessarily wants you talking much about. But Jesus said the road to hell, the road to destruction is wide, it is broad, and there are many who are on that path, while at the same time the road leading to eternal life is narrow, and Jesus said that actually there are few on that path. And yet, folks, there is nothing more uh, important to ever consider in your life or my life than where we will spend eternity. Because eternity is forever. The Bible points out that everyone will live somewhere for all of eternity and everybody does not go to the same place. Now I want us to listen to what Jesus said in this text is involved in a legitimate New Testament conversion experience. What did Jesus have to say about being saved? First of all this morning I want you to notice with me conviction. Read again with me verses 1 and 2. In verse 1 it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now there are two main characters in this storyline and those two main characters obviously are Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus. But I would submit to you as well that there is a third unseen character. And that third unseen character is none other than the Holy Spirit. Now we're introduced to this man named Nicodemus. We're told that he was a Pharisee. And he's also identified as a ruler of the Jews. Now that implies that he was one of the Sanhedrin who were 70 rulers. They were a very powerful A class of rulers. They were much like today our nine Supreme Court justices. Only the most religious and the most faithful could ever be appointed to the Sanhedrin. And so we see that Nicodemus was a very powerful man and also a very religious man. But religion in and of itself is not adequate. Folks, if it were adequate, Nicodemus would have been at peace. And no doubt Jesus would have told Nicodemus to just quit worrying about his spiritual condition. Quit laying awake at night. Quit wringing your hands about it, Nicodemus. You're okay. You're on the way to heaven. Just go home and go to bed. That's what Jesus would have told Nicodemus. But such is not the case. You know, man is religious because he is searching for God. He's longing for something better. He's longing for peace with God. He's longing for a relationship with God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in our hearts. Romans 1 tells us that we all know that there is a God. Even creation itself testifies to an intelligent designer, to a supernatural God. And therefore Romans 1 says we are all without excuse. Pascal, the French philosopher, said there's a God-shaped vacuum inside of the human heart. 
man is incurably religious. And missiologists point this out to us. Wherever they travel in the world, whatever continent they go to, however deep the jungle is that they go into to try to find different people groups to share the gospel with, they tell us that there is one thing in common with every tribe and every people group. When they get there to tell them about Jesus, they find a group of people that are very religious. They've got some kind of altar and some kind of idols that they're worshiping, some kind of supernatural being that they're turning their attention to. Religion is man's attempt to reach up and gain favor with God. But it'll never work. The prophet Isaiah said that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. Religion in and of itself is nothing if religion is all that we have. You see, folks, the Bible says something has to happen in the very core of our being. In our very heart, in our soul and spirit. Something's got to happen there. A transformation has to happen there. A conversion has to happen there if we're going to be right with God. Now Nicodemus was longing for something more and so he came to Jesus by night. There seems to be a a, a restlessness in his heart. Some say maybe he came to Jesus at night because being at night time that would afforded him the opportunity of having a lengthier conversation with Jesus. During the day, Jesus was distracted by all of the multitudes that were gathered around him. And so by going to see Jesus at night, Nicodemus would have had more of an uninterrupted time of fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Or perhaps there was some concern in Nicodemus' mind for what others would think if they saw him going to Jesus. He's supposed to be a religious leader in the land. And so if they saw him going to Jesus and asking questions, maybe there's some fear in his mind of what people would think. But folks, more than that, I believe that what we are intended to see here is conviction. The Holy Spirit is working on Nicodemus' heart. Jesus in John chapter 16 said one of the ministries that the Holy Spirit would have would be to bring conviction on people's hearts to convict them of their sin and of their lostness and of God's judgment. And I think that's exactly what we see here in the case of Nicodemus. The Holy Spirit is drawing him to the Lord Jesus. Now he states that he knew that Jesus was of God. He'd seen all of Jesus' miracles and the particular kind of miracles that they were. He says nobody could do those type of miracles unless he was from God. Now folks, what's so significant here is that this ruler of the Jews with all of his religion was a very dissatisfied man. Something vital was missing in his life. Now that seems strange to us seeing that Nicodemus was a rich man and he was a religious man. Rabbinic tradition states that Nicodemus was one of the three richest men in Jerusalem. And yet there was no satisfaction in his life. He's clearly longing for something better. He desires peace with God. We see the Spirit of God at work here drawing Nicodemus to Christ. Jesus in John 6, said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now folks, we can criticize Nicodemus all that we want to for coming at night. We can say, yes, he was probably afraid of what people would think and and we know that we shouldn't be concerned about what people think. But before we're too hard on Nicodemus, let's remember something. Let's remember that at least he did something about these gnawing questions in his life. He did something about this emptiness that he was feeling. He had questions and so he went to the right person 
He went to none other than the Lord Jesus. He went to the right place and the right person. And perhaps today there is somebody here that needs to do that same thing. You need to get alone with Jesus. You need to do business with God. Maybe for some period of time now. Maybe just today. Maybe just this morning. The Holy Spirit is working on your heart and you know it. You thought it was just coincidence maybe that you came here this morning and it's not coincidence. Perhaps you're one today who has a divine appointment with God and you need to go to the Lord Jesus Christ with your conviction and your questions. You need to do exactly what we see Nicodemus in our text doing. You see there's an emptiness inside of you. You and I are more than physical beings. We are also spirit and soul. God has created us with that nature. And it is your spirit, it is your soul that is crying out for peace with God. And instead of running away from that, instead of trying to push that aside and saying, I'll deal with that later, you need to deal with it sooner rather than later. You need to deal with it today. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Behold, today is the day of salvation. Folks, I fear that we are missing one of the key ingredients today. In conversion. People hear a message in church today and maybe the Holy Spirit convicts them or or maybe they're just sitting there and they say, you know what, that was nice today. I probably ought to go down front and and join the church. I probably ought to fill out one of those cards and, and, and join the church. It's time that I do something like this. And there's just really no conviction. They're just sort of going through the motions of doing it. There's really nothing more to it than saying, Hey, honey, do you want to go somewhere and eat today for lunch or somewhere tonight? Do you want to go out and eat or do you want to eat at home? They're just kind of casually joining the church. Or saying, you know what, maybe I just need to become a little more religious in my life. But folks, in the Bible, what do we see? We see the need of conviction. Conviction of sin. Conviction of lostness. I think maybe one of the things the church is missing today that some of you old timers may remember is that old fashioned mourner's bench. That old-fashioned mourner's bench where people could come in a service who were dealing with conviction. They were dealing with God and they were wrestling with God. And they would get up out of their seats and they would go to a certain area of the church. And everybody knew they were dealing with something and pray for these individuals because they were at the mourner's bench. Conviction. We need to deal with that today. We're so quick to get somebody to join. Or as parents, we're so quick to want our parents uh, to make, as parents we want our children rather, uh, to make a profession of faith. We see other kids in the church coming forward and making a profession of faith. And we look at our kids and we say, honey, don't you think that it's time that you do something like that too? And maybe we put a pressure on them to do something before they're ready. Or we try to hurry this whole thing up. We try to discount this process of conviction. Or maybe we want to save our loved ones the agony and the pain of wrestling with God over their sinful condition. But folks, I'd say to you today, let them wrestle. Let them go through that because you see something heavenly is taking place there. Parents, don't try to spare your kids from that. Let them go through even days of misery if you sense God is working on their hearts. Now if conviction is happening to somebody during a service, that's great. But conviction may be taking place even over a period of weeks or even months. Some people get to where they can't sleep at night. They can't eat anything hardly. They don't have any appetite. There's just this gnawing ache inside of them. And they know they're not right with God. And it's like they they just can't get any peace at all. Let them deal with that process. Folks, that's a good thing because that means the Holy Spirit of the living God is dealing with them. 
Usually if something like that happens in a church service, it's because the Holy Spirit has already been dealing with them. And it's time that they make a decision. I think of one of our Baptist giants, one of our Baptist greats, Dr. B.H. Carroll, the president of Southwestern Seminary many years ago. When he came back from the war, he was an unconverted young man and his mom tried to stay after him to go to church with her. He wouldn't. Finally, they were having a revival and she talked him into that. And he kept going back night after night after night after night. And the Lord was really working on him. And he said, finally, in one of the closing nights, everybody else had gone home that evening. They dismissed the service. And there were some ladies gathered around the piano, and they were rehearsing their songs for the next evening. And B.H. said he just stood there, and he listened to them talk, and he listened to them sing, and he listened to some of those old great hymns. And he said, suddenly it was like a veil was taken from my eyes, and I saw what my condition was. And I believed and I came to faith in Christ. He said, I went home a new man. He tried to walk quickly past his mom and go on down to his bedroom and get in bed. She, she saw that something was going on. She walked back to his bedroom and he had the covers pulled up over his head. And she pulled them back and she said that she could see the countenance in his face. That there was a difference in his face. She knew something had happened. And she said, well, B.H., you got saved tonight, didn't you? That conviction process. Now, folks, I realize that that process happens a little differently for everyone. But my point is, don't get in a hurry with this. Let the Holy Spirit do His work on someone's heart. Don't hurriedly try to get uh, some kind of commitment out of them without seeing evidence of the Holy Spirit working on them. You know, I can't, I can't verbalize how badly this bothers me. I see people sometimes so quick to get a decision out of somebody. And don't do that. If they're ready, then draw the net. But if they're not ready, then use discernment. Give the Holy Spirit time to work. Give the Holy Spirit time to do what you and I can't do. What only He can do. And that is to convict them of their sin and their need of Christ. That's one of the things that bothers me about some of our modern day evangelism programs. By the time you get to the end of the presentation, you're supposed to have them ready to make a decision. They're supposed to be ready to sign on the commitment card. And folks, it doesn't work that way. I think in my own life how the Holy Spirit was working on me for a period of a year and a half. Getting me to the end of myself. Getting me broken before I finally surrendered my life to the Lord and He did His work on me. Before I was ready. It took that amount of time. And so again, don't get in a a hurry with this. But clearly what we see in our text is that Nicodemus was a man under conviction. Now the second thing I want you to see with me today is confrontation. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus gets right to the point. A person cannot go to heaven without the new birth. Jesus didn't say it would be a good thing. He didn't say he was making a suggestion that Nicodemus ought to think about and consider. Jesus said it is a necessity. It is a crucial thing to be born again. Nicodemus is is talking clearly like a man under conviction. He's beating around the bush. I've been talking to people before in the... We, we start sharing the gospel and, and I can tell they're under conviction. This is somebody that the Lord is working on. And, and it's not uncommon that they'll try to change the subject. They'll try to go down another avenue. They'll, they'll say something like, Pastor, do you think we're living in the end of times? And you've got to kind of bring the conversation back. And that's exactly what Jesus did here. 
Jesus brought the conversation back to what Nicodemus really needed to hear. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he'll not see the kingdom of God. Unless he's born again or born of the Spirit or born from above. The Greek word means from above, but it carries the idea of born afresh, born anew. Something that only the Holy Spirit can do. There's got to be a spiritual awakening. You've heard me say before that if you've only been born one time, you're going to die twice. If you've only been born physically, you're going to die physically. But you're also going to die spiritually, and that's eternal separation from God. But if you've been born twice, if you've been born not only physically, but also spiritually, then you'll only die once. You'll only die the physical death, but spiritually, the Bible says, you'll be with God. The Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now folks, what this points out to us is that we cannot go to heaven the way that we are. We cannot go to heaven the way that we are born into this world. In verse 6, Jesus said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Our physical birth does not equip us for heaven. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Folks, if religion were enough, Nicodemus would have been qualified. Again, he was a religious leader. But religion is not enough. It only dresses up our old nature. A couple of years ago, I told you about an an old fable that illustrates this. And I think it's a story that bears repeating. It's an old fable about an ancient king's court. And in this king's court, there were two assistants to the king, and they were always arguing back and forth and fighting. One was saying, you can make anybody a cultured gentleman. You can train anybody to be that. The other one was saying, no, something's got to take place in here first. And they were always arguing about that. And finally the king got so sick and tired of it. He said, I'm tired of hearing about this. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give each of you up to one year to go anywhere in the world at my expense and find evidence for your case. And then one year later we're going to come back here and you present your evidence. And so they both went out into the world. And it was nearing the time of the day of accountability and neither one of them had obtained all their evidence yet and the one who said you could train anybody to be a cultured gentleman gentleman, he was staying at an inn and he saw something that day that arrested his attention and he said that's it I've got to have this you see he ordered a cup of hot chocolate and coming to him bringing that platter of hot chocolate was a cat that had been dressed up in a tuxedo, trained to stand on his hind legs and walk like a man. And that cat was walking over to him with his order of hot chocolate. And he said, you know what? If you can train a cat to do something like that, you can train anybody to be a cultured gentleman. And he paid the innkeeper an enormous sum of money to have that cat. And he went back home just tickled to death. He said, I've won this contest. Well, word got out. And so the other king's assistant was growing very discouraged because he didn't have any evidence yet to point out that something's got to happen in here too. And one day while he was walking about a little discouraged, all of a sudden he walked by a storefront and his eye caught something. He went into the store and he came out with a small box tucked underneath his arm. And he went back to the king's palace. Both of them got there on the day of accountability. And the king said, okay, each one of you now, no more fighting. This is the day you're going to present your case. And we're going to go with whatever 
uh, happens here. And, and the one who had purchased that cat, all of a sudden he had that, that cat in that tuxedo standing up and carrying that hot chocolate over to the king. And all the crowd and all the king's court was wowed and everybody applauded. And then they looked with pity on that poor other fella who had obviously been defeated. And the king said, have you got anything to say for yourself? He said, as a matter of fact, I do. And he took out that box and he opened it up. And out jumped five white mice. And as soon as those white mice hit the ground running, that cat dropped that platter of hot chocolate, dropped down on all fours, chased them. He became a, a, a barnyard cat again. And hours later, he came back licking his chops with a grin on his face. And that tuxedo was all tattered and ruined. You see, folks, that's all religion in and of itself can do. It can dress up the outside for a while. But there's got to be the inward transformation. Jesus is insisting to Nicodemus that something more has got to happen to a person. Dr. Leon Morris in, in his esteemed commentary on the book of John, he says man's nature is so gripped by sin that an activity of the very Spirit of God is a necessity if that man is to be associated with God's kingdom. You must be born again. There's no question about it. There's no quibbling about it. I told you three or four weeks ago, the Lord laid this text on my heart. I'll tell you why. The reason is I got thinking what Billy Graham said a number of years ago. Billy Graham using passages like the parable of the soils for instance. Billy Graham said you could take any cross section of America. Any, any cross section in fact even of the church. And probably what you would find is 75% of people are lost. Well, folks, the evidence is in me. You see, of recent months and years, four different very, very respected groups have been studying this very issue. And as it turns out, actually, Billy Graham was overly optimistic. These four groups have come to their conclusions separately from one another, I might add. And you know what they found? Well, three of the four organizations found out that 7% identify with being a born-again Christian. 7% know what that is and say that's happened to them. The fourth group studied this same issue out and, and, and found out that it was 8.9%. Folks, did you hear that though? All four say from 7% to 8.9% understand what it means to be born again. They understand what it means to have biblical New Testament conversion. 7 to 8.9% cross-section of America, even in the evangelical church today. Now, folks, when you think about that, that is simply astounding. That's astounding. I realize you can't always go by studies and surveys, but you see what these researchers did? They began digging a little deeper than the typical questions. They would ask questions that you, you can't wiggle out of. There's not a gray area. They would, they would ask questions, uh, uh, you know, getting the person to describe New Testament conversion and, and what was involved in it. And what they found is the masses all across the land, even in the church, have no clue what it means. Now, folks, that's scary if you think about it. And you know what? We're seeing the fruit of that today. Of course, conversion is a heavenly transaction that you don't see, but the Bible says where it has happened in somebody's heart, you ought to see the outward fruit of it. 
and just look at what we're seeing today across America. One of the most disturbing books I've been reading lately is a book entitled Why Nobody Goes to Church Anymore. Now hang on, I've I've not changed the subject on you. We're not just talking about religion or church now. We're still talking about born again experience. But the two should be related in some way. Our outward worship patterns ought to reflect something of our beliefs. Now listen to some of the numbers, some of the things they have said. Every year more than 4,000 churches close their doors forever. Simply put, lots of people are leaving the church, many more people than you probably realize, and they're not coming back. The problem is truly overwhelming. If you don't believe it, let us overwhelm you with some of the facts. Just over 350,000 churches dot the U.S. landscape, but only some small, less than 200, and some large, more than 2,000, churches are showing any group. Uh, any growth the vast middle is dwindling churchgoers are getting older on average than the general population the younger the generation the higher the percentage that reports they're unaffiliated with the church church attendance is shrinking while 40 percent of Americans say they attend church every week the actual number is more like 20 percent Within five years, the percentage of congregations characterized by high spiritual vitality dropped from about 43% in 2005 to 28% in 2010. In just five years, the percentage of teenagers attending church every week has dropped from 20% to only 15%. Giving is down in recent years, part of an ongoing decline. In 2000... About a third of congregations exhibited excellent financial health. But by 2010, that number plummeted to just 14%. Every year, 2.7 million church members fall into inactivity. From 1990 to 2000, the combined membership of all Protestant denominations in the United States declined by almost 5 million members 9.5% decline while the U.S. population increased by 24 million or 11%. And this one is truly astounding. Half of all churches of any size in the years 2010, 2011, 2012 for a three-year period, half of all churches across America reported that not one single person joined their fellowship folks what does that tell us what does that tell us about spiritual life and vitality and I fear that that's why we're seeing things in America like we are you see where the new birth happens what what goes with the new birth new life What I fear that we are seeing all across America is an unregenerate church. Far too many, like Nicodemus, that may be religious and conforming to religion on the outside, but have no clue whatsoever what it means to be born again and reconciled with God. And again, we're seeing the fruit of that in society. Things in America like the porn industry. The porn industry in America is now taking in more money every year than Apple, Microsoft, Netflix, Google, Amazon, eBay, Earthlink, and all the car companies combined. Five out of ten men in the church report that they are addicted pornography. Three out of ten women in the church say that they are addicted to pornography. Every single second of every single day of every single week in America, every second there are three, uh, excuse me, 30,000 hits to pornography websites. 
every single second. We're seeing things in society today like this ongoing thing of abortion on demand and the church for four decades now has had little to no influence on that. The latest domino that we see falling now is gay marriage. And yet, do you realize that Romans 1, not a Baptist preacher, but Romans 1 says that those who believe in gay marriage, those who affirm gay marriage and either affirm it or practice it, Romans 1 says that they do not know God and God has given them over to a depraved mind. Again, folks, what we're seeing is the fruits of an unregenerate church. We're seeing evidently a great misunderstanding all across America of what the Bible is talking about in the New Testament when it talks about being born again. But Jesus didn't lower the standard. Jesus didn't pull back. Jesus confronted Nicodemus and he said, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Third thing I want you to see today, confusion. Confusion. Look at verses 4 and 5 and then verse 9. In verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Confusion. To Nicodemus, Jesus' words didn't make any sense at all. He was trying to figure all this out. It's like he was thinking, now, now Jesus, let me, let me try to wrap my mind around this. How in the world can a man get back inside of his mother's womb and go through the birthing process all over again? That's impossible. And it illustrates exactly what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2. Where it says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. The things of God seem foolish to a lost man. A lost man thinks he's got to earn it. You know, the Bible says there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. Man's way, man's logic, man's reasoning is that, hey, I've got to do something to earn my way to God to be good enough that God will accept me. You go all the way back to 1996, George Barna found that 57% of Americans say you've got to Earn your own way to heaven. Folks, that's disturbing. Christianity is a matter of grace. Jesus explains the new birth. Here in verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of of water and spirit. What in the world was he talking about? Well, join the crowd. Even some of the best scholars today on the book of John, they wrestle with what Jesus is talking about here. What do you mean by water? They, they debate that one. Some say it refers to the water that breaks at birth. In other words, Jesus was saying before you can see heaven, you've got to come into existence to begin with and be born physically. But there's some problems with that though. How about the child who dies in the womb? There's never the breaking of the water. Would that automatically cut them out of heaven? No. And so the water breaking at birth, not the best interpretation. Now, a kissing cousin to that interpretation that's far better is to equate water with semen. In fact, the rabbis writing about this religious issue in the first century, they equated the two. And so if you want to consider in Jesus' audience that sits in Laban, the original audience, Nicodemus hearing Jesus talk with the common understanding of the day of how the rabbis wrote about this very issue, 
they would have probably understood the water being seen. Now on that lines, whether you're delivered at nine months is not even the issue. You're conceived in the womb. And so Jesus is saying you've got to be conceived physically first before you can be born spiritually. Others say it refers to John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. Others say it's a reference to Christian baptism. But that ordinance had not even been established yet in the church. Others say it's a reference to the Word of God. That's probably the best explanation. You see in Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of the washing of water by the Word. And so not only must we have the witness of the Word of God, but we also must have... Uh, the birth, uh, the spiritual work of the Holy Spirit. There's got to be a work of the Spirit involved. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God and convicts you of your sin and need of a Savior. God regenerates you and enables you to believe. As Wayne Gruden points out in his huge volume on systematic theology, we tend to turn that around backwards. We tend to think that we believe, we do something, we believe, and then when we believe, that gets God's attention and He regenerates us. But as Gruden points out, the Scripture reverses that. God regenerates us, God touches us, regenerates us, enabling us to believe. At any rate, salvation is of the Lord. Acts 13, 48 says, And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And again in Acts 16, 14, it says of Lydia, that as she was listening to Paul preach, the Lord opened her heart. You see, God is the one who makes you spiritually alive. He quickens you. You come alive to spiritual things. This is the spiritual birth. And so to be saved spiritually, to be born again, you need the ministry of the Word of God and you need the ministry of the Spirit of God. Both of those are absolutely essential. And that's what Nicodemus needed to understand. And he didn't. There was confusion. And how did Jesus respond to that? He said, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it will. You hear it, you feel it, but you don't really know where it came from or where it's going. In other words, this whole process of how God brings about regeneration in people, it's a mystery. We can't fully understand what God might be up to in a crowd of people. Two people can be sitting on a pew hearing the identical message and the Spirit of God takes the Word of God that's being preached and He quickens one. They're regenerated. They're born again. They come to faith in Jesus Christ while the other one leaves untouched or maybe even with a hardened heart. It's a mystery. We can't explain this. It's something God does. But to illustrate the whole thing, Jesus gave the analogy out of Numbers 21 when they were in the wilderness and they were being bit by serpents and the remedy was Moses was to put that bronze serpent up on the pole and all they had to do, they didn't have to do anything but look, just simply look to the serpent on the pole and by looking they were saved, they were delivered, they were healed and that is an Old Testament typology of the cross. Jesus was going to be on the cross. And all one has to do is look to Him. It's not of us, not of me, not of you. It's not of human logic. It's something God does. We look to Christ and we're set free. And I tell you what, when that happens, if it's not happened to you, when that happens, you'll be a better dad. You'll be a better dad. Would you bow your heads with me, please?
I know probably everybody in here this morning has joined a church. And good for you in a sense, that's what we ought to do when we come to faith in Christ. Get involved in a church family. Follow the Lord in believer's baptism. We do all those things because we've been regenerated. But sadly for some people, those things happen in place of regeneration. Have you been born again? Have you been quickened in your spirit at the core of your being to where you've come alive spiritually? You're alive to the Word of God and to prayer and the things of God. You're different now. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Has that ever happened to you? Well, folks, if it's never happened to you, what does that mean? Again, Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Don't care how good you are, how religious you are, how successful you are. Jesus said, if you've never been born again, you're not on your way to heaven. But if you have been born again, you have the assurance of eternal life. Have you been born again? Most important question anybody will ever deal with and settle. If you're not sure, then probably not. How can you be quickened? How can you be made alive and not know it? Perhaps most in here would say, Pastor, good news, that has happened to me. And you know what? The Bible promises you eternal life. It's God's promise. But if you've not been born again, you have some business to do with God. In a moment, you may, you may want to slip out and come forward. I'm, I'm not going to embarrass you. You may just want to say, Pastor, pray for me. Pray for me that I would be converted, that God would get a hold of my heart, that I would be regenerated, that I would be quickened. I'd be happy to pray with you about that. Lord, would you do the work that only you can do? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.